morning. This is the old school education podcast dealing with the issues and trends and possible solutions to the uh, to the obstacles being faced within the education system. My name is Ross Miller. This is Dr. Stephen Bourgeois. And good morning, Dr. Bourgeois. Good morning, Dr. Miller. This is an exciting day because it's almost the end of the school year. Right. Who knows what's on your mind at this point? <laughs> I got a lot on my mind. And unfortunately, you know, one of the things that we, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that we're going to be talking about, I imagine, on multiple fronts and on multiple occasions has to do with forces that exist outside of education that feel comfortable enough making demands of and making suggestions on the education system. And, you know, the problem is when you're looking at it, you know, this bunch of politicians and pundits of all stripes um, that should probably stay out of the profession. and they're outside of the profession, but their musings and their dictates show that they have little capacity for the profession. They don't really understand it. They don't understand what we do. They don't understand how we do it. And so as a result, it creates debate, it creates controversy. So I don't know. I think I think it's going to be one of those things that we are going to have to confront on a regular basis on this podcast because people keep doing it. So so who are these these folks, these bastards? As you, I mean, you're implying that, that these people are not there to, to help. They think they may be helping, but they're not. Well, some people. Um, I got so I got yesterday. I got a I got a text from a friend of mine um, who sent me an article from the New York Times. Now, uh, the New York Times is a paper of very high distinguished reputation. Um, they have been here a long time, the old gray lady, as they call her. Um, and unfortunately, the old gray lady has been taking some hits lately, you know, so they have not been affording themselves in a way that you might think journalists should afford themselves. Uh, but they wrote an article talking about changes being suggested out of Texas, out of Austin, about how history should be it, how history should be done what should be emphasized, what should be de-emphasized. And I want to preface this by saying that I've not read the law in detail, okay? And so it's not it's not even a law, it's a bill. It's just being discussed at the moment. And the idea is, is that they're going to be discussing it for the purposes of trying to vote on it and pass it. And the first thing you think about as a history teacher is that we've seen this before. You know, every once in a while, you'll hear something from Austin that says, you know, we're going to focus on this, we're going to de-emphasize that, you know, whatever the case may be. When the school board or when the state government says that, at least here in Texas, when they say that, what they're talking about is how they are going to shape what is going to be asked on the EOC test. This is the end of course exam which also serves as a STAR exam, which is a graduation requirement for students in high school in the state of Texas. Now, because as we've discussed before in this this, uh, podcast, because so many teachers teach the test and they teach nothing but the test, there are concerns that what Austin dictates is going to be what's talked about in the class and nothing more and nothing less. So, for example, New York Times says that the that the state of Texas is entertaining a bill that would either de-emphasize or otherwise um, mitigate uh, the story of slavery in the state of Texas. Okay, now 
again, this is the New York Times perspective on this particular bill. I haven't read the bill yet. And so I cannot speak to whether it does or does not try to de-emphasize slavery. But I will say this, this is not the first time that Austin has sought to affect change to dictate a emphasis with regards to history education. Nobody in Austin is trying to figure out how to mess with mathematics because nobody in Austin understands mathematics. I sure as hell don't understand mathematics, but everyone seems quite willing to opine on history. Now, why is Texas doing this? Well, first of all, a bunch of states have already done it. States like Idaho and New Hampshire and others have passed legislation to try to shape how history is being educated. Now, part of what they're doing is they're responding to a project that the New York Times sponsored called the 1619 Project. Now, the 1619 Project, among other things, suggested that much of U.S. history could be boiled down to kind of racial theory. Now, as any adult will tell you, no one thing explains everything. But somehow in the 1619 Project, racism and racial theory explains everything as to what happened in U.S. history, from colonization to the Constitution, to the ideas within it, to the beginning years of the Republic, you name it. Okay. So the problem is that you've got people on both sides that are using history as a form of politicization. And they are saying that you need to interject this idea or you need to interject that idea. And my thing is, none of you are historians. The major complaint about the 1619 Project that the New York Times did is a lot of it was headed up by journalists and activists. That's one of the reasons why it's largely criticized by historians. Uh, on that same note, whatever's going down in Austin <clears throat> is the same idea. You got historians going, I'm not sure that's right. you know. But what you have is you have politicians and you have activists kind of shaping that discussion in Austin. So what you don't hear is you don't hear historians taking part in this, at least not reputable historians. And so from my point of view as a history teacher who has spent the last 25 years desperately trying to keep a political tone out of how and what I teach in the classroom, this irritates me. And I'm wondering, have you, because you've, you've seen it at the small level and the larger level as an administrator, as far as just how a school operates. Do you see politics in any other realm of school functions? I think what you said about discipline is, you know, subject discipline is, is pretty accurate. I mean, there are things, you know, foreign language is more about methodology and, and there, you know, how much speaking will there be, you know, is that going to be valued more than grammar? So we're all technical things that people don't really get passionate about and a politician wouldn't care less. Hmm. People do get, um, I guess you would call it political about teaching phonics or not. I mean, that's an old debate, but it's still going right. on. And you know, it, people will die on the sword on either side of that issue. Those are fighting words. If you mentioned phonics among mm -hmm. education, about particularly elementary educators. But um, no politician is demanding that we spend more time on the subjunctive. Is that what you're saying? Or are they? Right, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't care because they don't understand it, but they, they understand enough. Of, I, mean, I think what you're getting at is when they have a little bit of understanding, it's dangerous. Mm. So they can talk about, you know, reading methodology at the elementary level. They're not going to talk about 
the approach to literature, liter literary theory, things like that. Um, and they have very little access to math. I mean, math, you know, when you're, you know, I've, I've come from both sides as far as public, traditional public schools and private schools. Mm. Uh, the scope and se sequence of math, those are, are math, are also fighting words because you, you know, what do you do first? What order? Particularly early on, that that, that matters. But right. nothing like what you're saying about content. Um, and you know, for for history, you're talking about a lens of interpretation of history that's being forced, maybe, um, as opposed, you know, and then that'll affect what what are the standards and the uh, the objectives because of the the test. So when eventually, like we always say, it's going to get to the test, and teachers teach the test as you already said. Right. Well, it, you know, the thing that. And here's the thing that I, that I, and I'm trying to debate how to talk about it with my department. I mean, we've talked about it in a very cursory manner. Hey, have you heard the thing about in Austin or whatever case may be? We haven't discussed it in detail, but I imagine depending upon what happens with the momentum of the bill and what the status of it is by the time we reconvene in August, it's going to have to be a conversation. Now, from us, from an intellectual freedom point of view, and this is where I come from, that as a, as when I say intellectual freedom, I'm talking about the freedom to discuss things intellectually beyond the dictates of any political paradigm, which is what a lot of people want to make history. This is something that you hear about when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. This is what you heard the Soviets did, you know. That you know, history class was about the glorious empire and you know <laughs> the the glorious struggle of the workers against the prole you know you know what have you. But it's um this incessant need to look at history through a political paradigm is not just denigrating to a profession and a discipline that I love and I cherish and I value and I consider to be of utmost importance. This is also an attempt to try to pervert how kids learn history. And it's not just about how kids learn history, it's about what kids learn about history. And it seeks to define what the appropriate relationship is between the individual, the citizen, and the state under which they live and they pledge allegiance to, you know? So if you are on the 1619 side of things, to suggest that the entire history of the world can be explained by the rather oversimplistic idea that's all about race. And then you got on there on the other side as if slavery may or may not have happened. Again, I don't want to speak too strongly about this because I haven't read the bill. I'm, I'm looking at it through the lens of people who have pontificated on it and they've got their own agenda. But if what they say is true, that the idea is that they're trying to de-emphasize the nature of slavery and the impact of slavery, then those folks are just as idiotic as the folks that seek to oversimplify history. Okay. Thing is, history is complicated and it's multi-layered, multifaceted, and it does not stand scrutiny. The Yahoo who comes in and says the answer is A, you know, that's the kind of crap that we get in end of course exams. That that's the only thing they're asking. They're asking questions that can have a definitive, this is the answer, there's no other further discussion, on you go, kind of a thing. And that's from a historical standpoint. That's what we're faced with. Well, that 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 test is where it gets un uncomfortable. 
Um, I, I mean, you have a master's in history, so you've looked at all kinds of different lenses and theories to view <laughs> history. Um, I think that, you know, as students are in, in school, particularly before high school, they're, they're just getting, you know, really basic names and dates, but not about the interpretation or the lens, but right. it does come in later. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would say multiple lenses, you know, the, the more, the better. Um, but, but, but then the, the, the test itself um, tends, if what you're saying makes sense to me, that it aligns with a specific theory, or it will. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the, the, I guess the hope here is that the state of Texas takes a long time to make these decisions. They're going to argue about it. They're going to, it's going to be embarrassing arguing because people are going to come in and make speeches about things they don't understand. Right. Um, it, it'll be painful. I don't suggest you go. It'll be you'll <laughs> start to rise up again. I've seen that before, um, but it will. It'll it'll take some time, and then you know these these things uh, change doesn't happen right away, right? Uh, and maybe and the political currents will will shift and so forth, and and you could be into the sunset by that point. Personally, you, you right. know, if if that if that helps, it does not help. Though. <laughs> okay, I, I tell you where it does help. It does help in a sense that. I have a feeling that I can be a bit more confrontational about this, knowing I've already hit my magic retirement number. Oh, and so, no. You're going to regress? And, 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 and because we, I, you know, I've worked with you on this, Ross, yes. over the years. <laughs> We're going to get to the where you're going to be shouting people down at public meetings. No, 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 no. Here's the thing, though. I mean, this conversation needs to be had. Whether we're talking about 1619 or whether we're talking about people in Austin, we need to have a discussion and we need to have a debate. And so, by God, if we got to have it, let's have it now, because anybody who comes in from any sort of political sphere and think they're going to lecture me on history, I'll take that debate. Now, I, I don't know everything, you know, and, and certainly there are better history teachers than I, but there are certainly worse history teachers. And uh, But what I'm saying is I know my history, you know. Yeah. And so some politician want to come to me and say, we need to follow 1619 or we need to follow this other stuff over here out of Austin. Okay, let's have the debate. If you think you can have the debate with me, let's have the debate. But you need to come to me with evidence and facts and logic and reasoning and rationalism. You cannot come to me with emotionalism. You cannot come to me with victimhood. You cannot come to me with denialism. You can't come to me with any of that because I'm not going to I'm not going to stand for it. I know how things in general happen. So let's have the debate. Let's talk about well, it. Let, let, let's make it happen. You get in your car and drive to Austin and they have a microphone there <laughs> and a timer. You know about the timer where you have maybe, maybe 60 seconds uh, to, to make a little speech. And then they, if you keep talking, you know, security to come and, and move you away. It's like a large um, hook comes off from the side and just kind of drags yeah, you. They'll, they'll start, start playing, playing the music. music. Yeah, yeah, music in the background. <laughs> Um, but but maybe there are, there are processes that probably are to involve mm. teachers and so forth. But this might be the time to get into the conversation because you know they, they need voices on on both sides of this issue because it, it certainly is political and you know nothing more. It sounds like right now. Well, as Teddy Roosevelt said, he spoke to the man in the arena, and maybe yeah. I need to step into the arena. Oh. You know. What, what an idea. You should get into politics, Ross. You'd, um, <laughs> I don't, you, know, you could run for office. Um, no, I mean, no. You'd no, have no, my no. vote. Um, I don't know about anybody else, but I'd support you. We could get t-shirts or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
It'd be interesting to consider what my campaign slogan and other paraphernalia would look like uh, if I were to run for office, but uh, no one has to worry about that. So I do not seek the limelight. And I don't want the limelight. I'm happy in my classroom with, you know, with high school students. I'm happy with that. You know, we could use use this podcast and get somebody here who completely disagrees with you on this issue and and have it out. And I'll just sit back and enjoy it. I think that would be fun. It would be fun. We got to figure out who that would be. Um, uh, Some poor person who's about (laughs) to be lambasted publicly. Um, Well, Well, this is the other problem. Yeah. You know, the, the part of any kind of scientific ideals, part of the process of the scientific method is to present your ideas for scrutinization. You know, the idea that you allow yourself the chance, you know, you know, Milton wrote that he, you know, he could not tolerate people who kept their ideas cloistered inside and not giving it the air of criticism and not being willing to subject themselves to criticism. That is a, that is an under, that's a, that's a unvalued idea. Oh. If you're not willing to put yourself out there in front of somebody else and willing to have an honest discussion, then I have no respect for you. I have no respect for your ideas, you know, and that's, that's going to be the, that's going to be the difficult part. There's plenty of people willing to talk, but are they willing to discuss? Well, they're, they're willing to, they're willing to post, videos that make their point for them or put the little thumb up mm. uh, but but the the level of discourse to, to actually have an extended debate you know it, it's definitely important I, you, know, you mentioned outside forces um you probably had more on your mind than simply politics you know who else has uh effect on, on a classroom that, that really doesn't know any better well this is when you get it kind of a little tricky but i think i think with Here's what's happened over the last, certainly over the last 50, 60 years, there's been a devaluing of teachers and the idea of teaching here you know, in, in general, not just in Texas, but I think in, in throughout the U.S. there's right, been a right. devaluing. I mean, this is where you get the infamous joke, those who can do and those who can't teach. And so what that has done is it created an atmosphere where a lot of people have felt free to pontificate their own ideas about what happens in the classroom. Now, from our, from the education point of view, it's mostly politicians because politicians control the political apparatus, the administrative apparatus of education. Okay. Uh, our superintendent is a nice guy, you know, but he also has to kind of walk the line between educator and politician because his job is multifaceted. And above him, it's nothing but politicians. There's not even a semblance of educational expertise anywhere there, you know. But what are we talking about? Um, what are we talking about? Politicians, whether we're talking about activists, social commentators, parents, you, know, you name it. There is a lot of noise outside. Uh, you talk about culture. You know, one of the things that you brought to my attention early on in our friendship was Neil Postman and his ideas of education as a subversive activity. Could you explain a little bit about what that meant, what he meant by that? Well, he had he had two uh, books, you know, that kind of argued against each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first was teaching as a subversive activity, and the second was teaching as a conserving activity. And I think you and I tend to side with the, the latter, the conserving element of, mm-hmm. of teaching, and that's our whole point of the old school 
um, but subversive um, is is something that you know that, you know recall he was writing in the late 60s 70s mm. where you're trying it's, it's different than critical thinking it's criticism you're you're providing a forum for students to try out opinions mm-hmm. uh, to look uh, at things in a different way and to criticize them and and through a critical method you you learn and you learn to articulate a, a view mm-hmm. um, and and he refers to a lot of subjects beyond particularly um, communication and and um, literature and, and so all the things that we've we've talked about today that's a a critical lens so he was saying that's one side of uh, education and that and that could be almost a curriculum in itself mm-hmm. um, the the other side is the conserving function that it that it holds uh, ideals and things that we want to maintain, mm. um, but 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 either way, there there's a idea that methodology doesn't need to be just about you know teaching a test. It's teaching a, a way of thinking. It's a exercise in uh, being able to be a critic, but a, a, a an articulate one. Um, and and I think that well, I'm sure that that we've lost that today. I mean, everybody is is so worried you know i mean you, you, it takes very little just a some little comment in your in your you're through you know right. um but but so the, the 70s and neil postman you know really was interested in public discourse and making the the classroom a type of open forum as well and it used to be that education was the bastion for that discussion mm-hmm. i mean uh, at uc berkeley mario savio the free speech movement the idea that different ideas, that unusual ideas, unorthodox ideas, are not to be swept under the rug, but they are be there to be aired out in the public forum. You know, there is a problem when you seek to uh, when you seek to kind of crush ideas that run against some type of orthodoxy. And right now, you know, educators are dealing with a dual orthodoxy. It's an orthodoxy from the left and it's an orthodoxy on the right, you know. And the problem is, is that, you know, there's, there's, there's an advantage on our side for those who seek to try to emphasize the importance of speech, the importance of all speech, intellectual freedom and thought. And that is the idea that if you try to suppress it, it will grow. That's what Salman Rushdie said. You know, he said, I'd rather know the racist in the room. The problem is when you try to sit there and sweep stuff under the rug, it festers. And so uh, so from, from my point of view, the idea that education now has become a tool to shut down conversation, not to enhance it, not to empower it, not to uh, treasure it, is kind of a dangerous thing. And this is And this is part of when you look at if you just look at the titles, the idea of conserving, the idea of being subversive, there needs to be a there needs to be a desire, there needs to be a movement within education to stand against popular culture, because popular culture is not healthy. I don't I don't know anyone who says, upon looking at the landscape of modern culture, that goes, yeah, things are going great, everything's fine. No one says that. Okay, and so if that's the case then what the hell are we doing in education by embracing popular culture, which by definition is a rather transient, capricious set of ideas. What we need to do is we need to be becoming some sort of bulwark of sanity, some sort of bulwark of uh, ideas and 
and goals and objectives that stand as the basis for good education, good educational practices. And I don't know. I, I, I don't see I don't see the groundswell yet, but it doesn't mean it's not coming. Well, there is one here uh, between the two of us. Intellectual freedom, <laughs> it's usually discussed in terms of higher ed. Mm. Um, and and you know it's been compromised there you know and we, we could go into that but but at the you know this the elementary and secondary level I, I think that it, you know we've taken not only a hit but it's really you know teachers are, are afraid to have real conversations in class I mean they won't even talk about topics you know mm. and you can't really if you you give a lesson on Marxism or fascism or um, you know anything that's an ism you know, yeah. it goes home and, the, and there's a conversation and an email and and just and they, they think that you're indoctrinating them when you're actually teaching a topic so you know, teachers on on one hand are, are err on the side of caution they don't want that type of con- controversy most of them uh, and also I don't think that teachers are trained to to moderate a debate they're they're trained to present content and, and test and, and manage behavior but not certainly to to, to be in that um, in that role of, of taking different ideas they those things are, are relatively frightening to a teacher when you have to you know confront that in your classroom and this goes into some other topics that we will definitely get into somewhere down the line but i wonder what the situation would be like were teachers afforded more respect as a profession and as professionals? If teachers conducted themselves in such a way that demanded more respect as a profession and as professionals, would they be more willing to enter into the fray? Because I will tell you, I, I talked to two history teachers that expressed reluctance to enter into the fray on slavery or civil rights or any of this other stuff if one that's the intended purpose of this new law that's being debated or new bill that's being debated in Austin and two, if it passes. And there's a bunch of people that are also worried about trying to run afoul of the, of the dogma that is included in the 1619 project. You know, if teachers are afraid to enter into that, into those waters, you know, and that's, that's that's evidence to what you just talked about. Well, it's going to, I hate to say water down, but it's going to simplify the curriculum back to what we hate, which is names and dates. And, Mm. um, you know, where is Michigan on the map? (laughs) Um, And I mean, we're talking about U.S. history, you know, predominantly here, but world history, all this this applies. Um, I would say that the the curriculum is, is relatively narrow and and it could use a lot of help you know, to, to allow you know, not only more views, but more breadth. Um, you know, it, it, it's frightening to me, you know, when, you know, when the, the history curriculum can be assessed in, in 30 to 45 minutes, mm-hmm. okay, you're, you're, you're through. Um, I did, did I ever talk about the, the textbooks in Michigan I, on this show? I know I've told you about that. No, I don't think you have. Um, well, at one point I, I left a perfectly good teaching job in Texas and, and moved um, with with my wife to to Michigan, so that was kind of an relatively early in my my teaching career, and and so I went there to teach German, and it was quite a a, a shock because teachers, you talk about the role of teachers, uh, that's a union state, mm. so the teachers have a lot more power, a lot more voice, 
than than here, where where it's just a lot of smiling and nodding. You know, the, but but the <laughs> faculty meetings are just that. You know, but yeah. but anyway, I was I more raucous like, affairs. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, but I, I do recall, uh, I, I didn't have an office. I was actually traveling from one room to the other because I was a new teacher there. You're a floater. And, yeah, I was a floater. And I didn't really like the floating, but I did like the faculty room. It was a nice room. And I got to talk to some of the older teachers, the more experienced one, and kind of learn learn some things. And it wasn't a bad experience at all. I had have my lunch in there. And, and, and it was, we were surrounded by books. I thought, this is a really nice looking faculty room. Um, mm. And then I, I noticed uh, on the bottom shelf going clear around were world history books, you know, high school world history books. And, you know, I noticed some teachers there and I, I pointed it out. I said, uh, where, you know, it, it, it looks like you all just adopted a new uh, world history curriculum, you know, and have a new book. Is that the case? Mm. And they said, oh, no, um, the in, in the state of Michigan, and this was, you know, 15 years ago or something, um, world history is no longer on the state test. Mm. It's not assessed. And so we just don't teach it anymore. <laughs> so the books literally were there never to be used again. Uh, I, I hope they've changed since then, but that was, that was it. They, so. they, they stopped teaching it <laughs> because it wasn't tested. I mean, what, what do you do with that? I just, you know, I, I understand on some level, but I fear what this does to history, education. Um, as you know, I took a couple trips, three trips total to Japan with students. And one of the things I love to do when I go to a new country is I try to find a history book in that country just so I can see how, and of course I can't read Japanese for, you know, save my life. It's a, um, it would be a wasteful uh, time to try to figure that out. But the thing I got out of looking at a history book in Japan is that it basically has become a bullet point book, you know, where it's, it's like a, it's like a, uh, a very detailed timeline and that's all they have. They don't go into details. Now, the problem is Japanese national policy and history over the last hundred years is not necessarily something you want to go into detail about, you know, and that's been a big debate in Japan about textbook adoptions and things of that nature, because nobody wants a textbook adoption of a history book in Japan that goes into the fact that the Japanese were horribly cruel to Koreans and Vietnamese and Chinese and all this other stuff. Uh, and so their history books reflect that. That's, that's where we're headed, because no one wants to talk about anything. We're headed towards a time when our history books will not be exercises and exposition but they will just simply be the categorization of, of, of detailed outlines. And this is all you need to know. This happened on that date. That happened on this date. This happened on this date. Congratulations. Here's your cap and gown. Here's your diploma. Have a nice day. That's a depressing way to spend <laughs> the, the, the morning thinking about that. Um, but to be um, fair, the, the, the state test in Texas is not that different. It's, yeah. I mean, it's not requiring analysis. You know, you're presented with its multiple choice, but mul it's, you know, it's at the lowest level for the most part. Mm -hmm. The tests that your students get from you, you know, even the multiple choice questions are much more challenging. Sure. Uh, and so, so what do you do? I mean, you, we we've said before that history is a a reading subject that right. shouldn't uh, 
the assessment of history be a writing activity? You know, how else do you analyze something? You, how can you show some understanding analysis by selecting bubbles? No. In a way, it doesn't lend itself to that kind of assessment. Whereas math, where you sound, solve a problem, it makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in history, I think you need to show your work. You know, the problem is, is that, and this is going to be the difficulty in making a stand, because a history teacher will stand up and say, we need to keep politics out of history. And there's going to be a group of history teachers that say, yeah, those damn Democrats. And there's going to be a group of people going, yeah, those damn Republicans. <laughs> and the problem is neither one of them get it. I'm talking about both people. Everybody stay out, you know, and because none of them have shown themselves worthy of the discussion. And so, you know, for me, that's why, one, we need to keep politics out of the political sphere, uh, out of the historical sphere, because it's just wrought with danger. If these people were truly historians, they would know what happens when government seeks to shape and mold and dictate historical education. There's too many examples, you know? And so someone said that the greatest lesson of history is that people don't learn from history. You know, you know, the Santayana didn't go far enough in his comment about, you know, that, uh, that people who forget history are doomed to repeat it. No, that, there is a hit. There is a lesson that people learn, and that is they forget it. You know, and so, you know, the idea that we need to find some way to, and it's not just from the outside. Teachers in a classroom in front of kids, shut up about your own political opinions. That's not your role. Your role is not to sit there and and, and pontificate like some sort of, like some sort of guru on a mountaintop. That's not your job. Your job is to foster their thinking abilities, you know, and some people have the mistaken notion that critical thinking has to do about what you think. And as Christopher Hitchens says, it has nothing to do with what you think. It's how you think. That's what defines critical thinking. You could be a critical thinking liberal. You could be a critical thinking conservative. But uh, I mean, that, that's, that's the other side of this. You know, there's some, there are some history teachers that say, yeah, go Austin, go, you know, whatever. And there's some history teachers like, yeah, New York times, 1690, you know, all that stuff. And they're both wrong because they do not understand the subject. If they think that that's their role. Well, thinking back to, to Neil Postman, he, he wrote another book called the end of education. I think you've read that also. Yes. And he, you know, he talked about the American story as really a, a central element of, of, of the curriculum. But one of his suggestions for a methodology, and this would apply to university or even high school or below, um, is to, to actually lecture, but include bias in your lecture intentionally. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a risky and takes some skill to pull that off. And the, the assignment of the task of the students is to identify bias and call you out on it and, and talk about it right there. And, and, and so that's a, a, a different approach that I, you know, I don't think could be executed right now um, unless it were someone like yourself. And, and even that would take a lot of planning. And uh, you remember when I tried it? Uh, we talked about this before, but I, I, I did it fall apart. It, well, it didn't necessarily fall apart. I think, first of all, the students were 
initially and completely throughout the process ill at ease. And then there (laughs) were, yeah, well, because, you know, because you're setting yourself up, you're telling us, listen, you know, there's there, I want to, I want to talk to you about something and I want you to pick something apart here. So you're having to be like an actor. (laughs) A little bit, you know, but then there was also the parents. (laughs) <laughs> my kid says you're relying to them on purpose yes, it was, you know um, and it's like and and listen I, I don't usually fault parents about about that because lord knows it's like the whispering game you tell a kid something and then what they end up telling their parent is something so far-fetched and uh, unrelated to what you actually said you can't really blame the parents now the parents could exercise a little bit of um, a little, a little bit of critical thinking on their own and say, well, you know, my kid doesn't always get it all right. Maybe I should take it easy as I step towards Mr. Miller, but, but I, I don't necessarily fault the parents for uh, having a misinterpretation of something. If all they're doing is they're, they, you know, based on what their kid said. So it was a, it was comical in a way, but it was only my first time trying it. And I haven't tried it since. Maybe I, <laughs> You should have invited me in to, to listen. I don't know. I don't think you did. No. So I think I kind of like the idea though, because I think the idea is was twofold. Does the kid know their history? And the second part of it is bias has no role in the history classroom. Now, if a kid wants to have some bias, that's their, that's their prerogative. But what you hope the kid gets after a year in your classroom is that nothing should be beyond questioning. You know, was it Voltaire that said, if at all possible, all things should be questioned? Was it Vol- was that Voltaire uh, or Descartes? A... Was that? <laughs> I don't know. It, it should be. Let's let's ascribe it to Voltaire okay. for now, <laughs> provisionally. <laughs> but the idea that, it, that if at all possible, all things should be questioned. And that's a liberating, freeing kind of a thing. And anybody who presents something to you and says, this is the way it has to be, automatically my alarms go off in my head. I don't care if I agree with them or not. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't subscribe to that point of view. Call me Jewish, you know, but uh, I, I don't believe in nothing being questionable, you know. Job questioned God for God's sakes, you know, <laughs> yeah, everything is up for questioning, you know? So who knows? I don't know. Well, this um, is probably a disjointed <laughs> podcast because I came uh, in a little bit irritated <clears throat> and then. You made me think of a, a line from a wonderful musical called into the woods. Um, and, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, but one of the songs, and it just has like a couple of lines that I want to recall. It said, no more questions please, no more tests. Um, and, and we should put that up because at, at, at some point uh, it feels good not to be questioned or be tested. Yes. Um, so that, that's out there as well. But the testing continues and it continues to, to shape students and teachers and everybody. Um, quite a force that is. Um, but I, I don't have any solution for the, the, the politics. You know, I think that that's, that's going to take another 50 years and who knows. We could gonna... be doomed by that point. So, well, both of us will certainly be doomed. Um, we'll be I, food, food for worms. Uh, I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. It's kind of a, you know, I just, I, I hope, I hope and I pray 
that we can see our way out of this. And, you know, this, this kind of polarization, you know, it, it can be a good thing because the opposite is groupthink. But the problem is you do have these, we don't have polarization so much as we have pockets of groupthink. And I want to see a way out of that for us. It used to be a, a center and a mid center and all, all these new, that we're, we're looking for nuance. Yeah. And, and we're both comfortable with that word at this point. <laughs> saw a kid that had a shirt on with big, bold and capital letters. I want nuance now with like an exclamation point. Wow. <laughs> that, that's what it's all about. That's, I, I think I don't usually get t-shirts, but I, I might want that one. Yeah. I'll, I'll buy one if you, you buy one. All right. Very good. Yeah. We'll, we'll do it on our next podcast. So, but um, well, Herr Dr. Bourgeois, I hope you enjoyed this uh, 30, 40 minutes of angst, of tension, of unveiled anger, not anger, frustration. Frustration for me was always entertaining. Uh, <laughs> it, it took 45 minutes. It seemed like about two hours on my end, but other than that, it was, it was a great conversation. And I, it may I, seem I, like three hours for the listener, so. Maybe so, but I, I feel your pain and I'm, I'm very glad that I'm not in, in that classroom right now because you're, you're in the in the fray, I guess. We're going to fight the fight. There you go. Yes. We have more. It is not with us as it is with other people who small things can discourage. Okay. You can yes. just, we're going to fade out the podcast and keep doing your quotes. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, uh, well, I'll say it first. So, um, auf Wiedersehen. Goodbye, Herr Miller. Auf Wiedersehen. Adieu, Herr Dr. Bourgeois. <laughs>